0: It's really inspiring to see someone push themselves and challenge themselves, like bringing out the achievements of people who are fighting the odds um, and really putting into context today's race, even for a pro, because even a pro is overcoming something tremendous each race they do, like it's never rosy. And understanding that hardship, I think, will give people context into the meaning of a particular race for a particular runner, whether they're
1: an amateur or the world's best. That's Sanjay Rawal, and this is episode 34 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week, I've got a great guest for you, Sanjay Rawal. Sanjay is the director of a new film called 3100, Run and Become, which takes a close look at what I think is probably the most unique foot race in the entire world. It's called the Sri Chinmoy Self-Transcendence 3100 Mile Race. That's 3100 miles of racing in 52 days or less around the same half-mile city block in Queens, New York, in the heat of summertime. About that for a second. That's 59 miles a day on average, round and round and round, the same loop for almost two months straight. Pretty gnarly stuff. So it's not my typical conversation. We didn't talk about training, nutrition, recovery, the state of the sport, any of that. Instead, we got into Sanjay's film and what went into the creation of it. We explored why people do this crazy race year in and year out. But beyond all that, we discussed spirituality, culture, and storytelling, and the role all of those things play in running. I think you'll take a lot away from this conversation. I sure did. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Sanjay Rawal. Sanjay Rawal, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast.
0: Mario, it's an absolute thrill for me to be on.
1: So I have a lot of recognizable athletes, coaches, personalities from within the running world on this podcast. And no offense to you, I don't think your name is going to resonate with a lot of my listeners. So why don't we just start with your background? Who are you and what do you do? First of all, I take offense to that.
0: I, 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 I cleaned up in high school in the East Bay. Um, so if anybody was in San Leandro High School or any of the kind of affiliated high schools between 1989 and 1992, they'll definitely know my name.
1: That is, a, yeah, I think that's a huge percentage of this uh, of this podcast listenership. So I take that back. I am very sorry. <laughs> no, I,
0: I, I'm, I'm kidding. You know that right. that my, my 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 journey is. I think like a lot of high school runners. Um, you know, I, I did well. You know, had good mile times, really good 800 and 400 meter times for high school, um, but didn't really see a point to running. Um, run, run, I was taught running was competition. And it, it took me 20 years to, to realize that there's a lot more to running than just for a second and third place.
1: When did that first realization come to you?
0: You know, so I, I grew up in the East Bay and did well in high school, um, you know, I was state ranked. But then I, I went to Cal and, you know, that, I, I was in the same year as Richie Boulay and he wouldn't, he wouldn't know me at all because I was behind him in regional and state races uh, by four or five seconds in the mile. But you know, by the time I kind of saw folks like that, you know, excelling in college, I realized that there was really no place for me. And I, I, I threw myself into academics, moved to New York for grad school, ended up working all around the world on, on human rights projects. Um, at the same time, I was studying with an Indian spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy, who was kind of at the heart of the marathon boom in the '70s and '80s. And by the '90s, late '90s, when I moved to New York, a lot of his students were into multi-day running races. And I mean, I was an 800-meter guy who hated the mile and detested the two-mile. Um, the idea of doing, you know, 200, 700, 1,000-mile races just was beyond my comprehension. And so, frankly, it wasn't until a couple of years ago when I started thinking about doing a movie on the the longest race in the in the world, the self Transcendence 3,100 miler. Um, and began to really spend time with elite, you know, majority indigenous athletes that I realized like, oh my God, there's so much more to it.
1: And you did make that film. It's called the 3100. It comes out very soon around the country. And I want to dig into that a little bit. Just give us some background on the race for those of us who don't know. What is the 3100 self-transcendence run?
0: So I moved to New York City from the Bay Area in the winter of 1997. And in the summer of 1997, the Indian spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy, who lived in Queens, started the self-transcendence 3,100-mile run. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's 3,100 miles, and Europeans usually do seven more miles to make it, and even 5,000 kilometers. But people have to do 59 miles and change per day for 52 days to finish within the cutoff. The organizers of the race had, you know, had they, they'd crewed on some of the, the earliest uh, transcon runs, uh, people doing their own kind of transcon uh, transcontinental runs in the 70s and 80s, people that were actually in those days into, you know, solo runs through all 48 states of the lower U.S., um, and and they understood that, like, the logistical challenges of, you know, Going from point to point were tremendous. And so they decided to stage this race on a half mile flat loop in an area where their marathon team was based so they could get a lot of volunteers. Um, and that was a local high school and the half mile sidewalk loop around it, which is relatively flat, but not entirely flat. Um, it took away the logistical challenges of dodging traffic, of, you know, tr- not having aid of, having to drive to and from your, your sleeping locations, 30, 40, 50 miles. So it's been going on for 22 years now. Um, and in the early days it only drew three or four people, but now they're kind of maxing out every summer with 12 to 14 people.
1: And who are these people and how do they enter this thing?
0: So the, the, in, in, in the first few years, you had folks that graduated from the multi-day, um, circuit. Keep in mind, like right in the 70s, marathon running was counterculture. And there wasn't even a female Olympic um, marathon event until 1984. In fact, I believe there wasn't even um, a medal event above 3000 meters for women until 1984. I mean, definitely there wasn't a 10k uh, medal event until 84. Um, And so, you know, you had these, these women that had been running in the 70s and you know, by the time they got to the 80s, you know, they wanted more. Um, and a lot of these folks were were urban runners and so they weren't close to the Leadvilles and the Hard Rocks and the Western states. And Fred LeBeau, the founder of the, the, the New York City uh, Marathon, he decided to stage a six-day race in Flushing Meadow Park. Now, in the late 1800s, there were things called pedestrians and those were six-day races held in Madison Square Gardens. Indoors, around a quarter-mile loop, and people would bet on the, the on, on who would, you know, would, would win those races. Um, and right. so Fred wanted to, to revive that like urban multi-day running, um, event and the great Giannis Kuros came, um, you know, Giannis did 188 miles in 24 hours on the road. Um, that's like, it's crazy. That's like 720 pace for 24 straight hours, including breaks, um, Yanis Kouros won one of the inaugural six-day races with a a record that still stands, basically 640 miles over six days. Um, But by the mid-'90s, a lot of those kind of early giants had wanted to push past six days. So Sri Chinmoy started 700-mile races, 1,000-mile races, 1,300-mile races. Um, And those were the the, the participants of those races were the the early participants of the 3,100. Um, these were all folks that did sub two thirty, some sub twenty marathons, but were just, you know, enamored more of distance rather than times,
1: yeah. And I think the historical context there is really worth highlighting because many folks, even who would consider themselves ardent fans of the sport of distance running today are are unfamiliar with that. Those Madison Square Garden races, the pedestrianism,. Um, for those of you listening, I encourage you grab Ed Caesar's book Two Hours. He talks a lot about that um, in the book as he highlights Jeffrey Mutai's story, um, trying to chase this this two hour marathon. But I think that really helps lay the foundation for where something like this emanated from.
0: I'm I'm totally with you. There's a, there's there's a, a, a disconnect these days between what we consider ultra running and what we consider um, marathoning. You know. The ultra running, you know, of the 60s and 70s, really started by the the, the Roadrunners of America founder and, and New York Roadrunners Club co-founder Ted Corbett. You know, those, those weren't so much about about you know exotic gorgeous courses. They were mainly about the, the mileage and 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 the time and the standardization of those distances. And so it's like this culture popped up within cities of doing these like really long distances. Um, but at the same time, as, as, as everyone listening knows, you know, the idea of mountain running developed its own life, you know, in, in the 80s, 90s, you know, really flourished in the 2000s. And now it seems like there's a, a yawning gulf between those two aspects, but they in fact kind of came from the same point. And people, you know, who would do the early 50 milers on roads would hear of the 100 milers in the mountains and would do it not necessarily for the experience of those trails, or the elevations, or the FKTs, but because those are the only places where you could do a hundred miles.
1: Mm. Back to the self transcendence race. I think one of the key words there is race. It's still uh, a competitive event on some level. I'd love to get your thoughts on that aspect of it because it's called the self transcendence race, but there's also the word self transcendence preceding it. So there's a couple different things at play there, and I'd love to get just a little more of your insight on that.
0: You know, I, 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 I look at it as, as though it was, you know, a, a Himalayan peak. Um, I think the first five or six editions of the race, people were just trying to finish. Um, but then, you know, in the early two thousands, this guy named Wolfgang Schwerk came and from Germany and, and Wolfgang had the number two, uh, 24 hour mark of all time. I think like 173 miles, um, behind Giannis Kuros. Um, and he came in and he obliterated the course record from 46 days down to like 42. I and mean, he was averaging 75 miles a day. Um, and then in 2009, he, he, he I think he, he bettered that record. Um, and that really established this event as a race. Um, it, the idea of self transcendence, it's, 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 very unique, um, to the philosophy of, of, of Sri Chinmoy, where he felt that you know, one of the easiest ways to experience the type of joy that comes from becoming a better person and from realizing all the progress you've made in life over the span of years or decades is through running. I mean, you can measure yourself against how well you've done in races or how well you have felt or the personal challenges that you've conquered. So in a sense, the self-transcendence 3,100 mile run, it's like, it's really difficult to go into it and, and try to compete against those running with you. Um, the race distance is so long. The, the, the challenges and obstacles are so daunting that you end up just trying to, to, to make it through your own personal turmoils. And so in that sense, it's like your only competition is yourself and your only obstacle is yourself. Um, as people get more experience, they begin to like chase those course records and they begin to, to chase other times. And if people do happen to be neck and neck in the race um, in the last couple of weeks, well, then, you know, they they begin pushing each other and pulling each other.
1: Yeah, and I think very few people listening to this, myself included, can wrap their head around running 3,100 miles in 52 days or less. I think what you had just said is the lesson that anyone can pull out of this. It's really a race against yourself, um, regardless of whether – you're doing it over a mile or 13 miles or 26 miles or 31 miles. I think you can still experience a lot of the same things through this competitive pursuit of running.
0: Well, well one of the, the interesting things for me was watching the, the race in 2015. Um, a diminutive paper boy from Finland named Ashprihanal Al-Auto um, came to try to better Wolfgang Schwerke's record um, now, Ashby Hanal isn't somebody that anybody knows. He's never run any major races. He, he basically takes his only vacation to come and do these multi-day runs. But beginning in the 90s, he ran uh, the 700-mile races, and then he did the 6- and 10-day races. And he's now done the 3,100 14 times. So his cumulative mileage racing on the streets or in the parks of New York City is over 53,000 miles.
1: That is insane.
0: That's like racing a marathon a week. I mean, I'm saying New York City, but it doesn't matter where. Racing a marathon a week for 39 straight years. That's his total race mileage, not including marathons and 10Ks and two milers and stuff like that. So in 2015, he came to try to better Wolfgang Schwerck's record. And he ended up, Ashbrihanel ended up averaging just a shade under 77 miles a day um and his pace was clockwork so you know it's a 6 hour marathon pace you know everybody who's had the, the joy of being on your podcast would you know run two two and a half you know sometimes pretty clo- pretty much close to three marathons in that span but he was doing 6 hour marathons three times a day for 40 straight days it was it was clockwork
1: yeah it's pretty remarkable when you think about it, just the resilience and the determination required to keep yourself going for that long.
0: And it, it, it takes a, a weird amount of speed, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the the folks that had set the records before, they were all sub 230 marathoners. And, you know, you ask how does a 230, 220, 218 marathon translate into a 3100? Well, it's the difference between averaging 59 miles a day And averaging 75 miles a day and finishing 10 days or two weeks almost sooner than anybody else.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. So your film, 3100, covers the 2016 edition of this race, if I'm not mistaken. Take me back a little bit further to when you decided I have to make a documentary about this and share the story of this incredible event.
0: So I, I've been inspired by, you know, obviously many, if not dozens of the people that are on your podcast. Um, and knowing that like, I, I couldn't touch those outer achievements. You know, I began to kind of think about like, what is the, the inner experience of running and, you know, watching Ashby all, you know, having done then 13 times 3,100, this is the end of 2015 and, and realizing that like, you know, nobody could do that based on their own mental power or, you know, estrangement from their, from, from their own minds. Like you couldn't be crazy enough to do it. You couldn't be determined enough to do it. You had to feel like you were getting a transformative experience out of it. Um, and, and it kind of struck me that, that these folks were coming back over and over and over as though they were coming to a pilgrimage, um, rather than, than, than racing. Um, I had a friend who introduced me to a young man, a Navajo gentleman named Dustin Martin, who runs an organization called Wings of America, uh, supported by a lot of philanthropists and and Nike um, to revitalize the Native American uh, spiritual and cultural traditions of running. Keep in mind, like Native Americans didn't actually have horses until the late 1600s. So for tens of thousands of years, they traveled the country on foot. And naturally, you know, you'd want to get to some places faster than than others, and you'd want people to pass messages. So they developed, you know, a really deep tradition of running. And it wasn't so much a, a job, but a, a, a way to connect in with their own cosmology, with their ancestors, with Mother Nature, with the divine. So I, I went to, to to meet Dustin of Wings of America, and he introduced me to the race director of the Canyon de chey Ultra, uh, one of those kind of elusive, exotic ultra marathons that have a a very, very small number of, of participants allowed. But it, it takes place in one of the Navajo sacred canyons in the eastern part of the reservation in Arizona. Sean himself is a champion ultramarathoner. I mean, he's one desert rat. He's, you know, won a number of other stage races, won, you know, some like the North Face 50 miler. Um, and when I met him, Sean distilled the Navajo running philosophy for me. He said, you know, when you run, you're praying. Your feet are praying to Mother Earth. You're You're praying for the 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 strength you're praying to the holy people and and you're breathing in Father Sky. And then he continued. He said running is a teacher. It doesn't just teach you how to overcome hardships in life. It teaches you who you are. And lastly he said running is a celebration of life. You run together, you run for a purpose, you run for your people. And when I heard that I realized you know there is a there's an extremely deep tradition to running um, that people who are doing ultras or marathons or any races um that you're obviously above sprints you know they're they're tapping into genetically but we might not be tapping into it you know culturally and i i i I would doubt that you know many people are consciously tapping into it you know in a in a historically spiritual way we might have spiritual experiences but you know we don't go out on every single run um understanding that each time, each mile we do is making us a better person.
1: Yeah. And and I love that perspective. I think there's something really special about that, that when we think about it, regardless of how we got into the sport or the activity of running that we can, we can all relate to.
0: I, 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 totally agree. And, and, you know, my own very, very limited experience with, with competition, you know, I had a couple of those moments where I felt so connected to something deeper in me than just my lungs and my heart. And when I, when I met Sean and then really traveled through the Navajo reservation with him, you know, I saw that there were five-year-olds, six-year-olds doing 10 Ks. There were 80-year-olds doing 10 Ks. It wasn't about the gear. It wasn't about the, 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 you know, the, the, the program you were following. It was about your heart. Um, and it wasn't just, the participation of these like young ones and and elders but you saw, Oh my God, it's like these kids between 19 and 30 were hammering out like 32 minute, 10 K's on single track trails at altitude, you know, with quite a bit of elevation change. And they didn't do that well just because they trained. They did that well because they'd been running since they were six or seven years old. And it wasn't just putting in the time, it was really understanding, you know, the the power that you could channel, you know, from Mother Earth by running the right way. And it just, it totally blew my mind. And that's what I knew we had a film.
1: Yeah, and and that was one of the most fascinating elements of the film for me, is how you wove that in along with the stories of the monks on Mount, I think it's Mount Hiei in Japan. And then, you know, you film the Persistence Hunters in... Like Botswana, I think it was, and and just you know their relationship with running all around, you know the the main story, which is this thirty one hundred mile, you know self transcendence race. How did all those pieces come together for you from a storytelling perspective, and how did you weave it all around this you know this narrative uh, of the thirty one hundred mile race?
0: Many of us have have read Born to Run, and that is obviously fascinating. It talked about the taramara It talked about the Kalahari Bushmen, but the, the, I think the part that maybe wasn't as as, as clear to, to everyone as it, as it could have been possibly um, was the Taramara and Southwestern Native Americans, they're not great runners because they eat chia seeds and because they run barefoot. Um, these folks are great runners because running is their life. Running is the way they connect to what they perceive as the divine or God. And so, you know, I, I knew there were other cultures around there, Around the world that that still did that, and with the understanding that I believe that we all did that um, before you know humans became agriculturalists ten thousand years ago, and you know we might have actually done that a lot you know more recently, um, but it wasn't something that we, we we tracked historically. So you know on on paper I, I knew that there were just three or four different cultures that I could get access to. Um, I wanted to show you know literally show on film uh, a persistence hunt. And the, the sad truth of it is that the oldest tribe um, on Earth are the Kalahari Bushmen in Botswana. And about 20 years ago, the the government there, the African government, you know, resettled them from their land into these horrifically small, basically concentration camps or effectively like American Indian reservations um, to get access to the copper that lay within their ancestral homeland. But the Kalahari Bushmen, you know, their lifestyle kind of gives us clues as to how powerful of a force running was in our life and how powerful we were as runners. People know on the Savannah, we had no evolutionary advantage. Um, You know, we were were trying to catch the same game as lions and and leopard. I mean, forget about it. But we were on two feet. And that meant that each time we took a, a step, we didn't have to breathe in or breathe out the way quadrupeds have to. We might not have been brilliant. We didn't have tools way back then. But we could carry water in skins, and so, based on knowledge of tracking, based on knowledge of geography, the bushmen then and now go on these long hunts where they chase these gigantic you know anaerobic machines, these these elk and these antelope um, they, they chase them over two days and exhaust them and dehydrate them and it's, It seems like it's just a genetic skill, but uh, the bushmen that we were with made it very, very clear to us that. You know, when they run, they're not just burning carbohydrates and fat. They are praying to their ancestors and they're channeling the energies in Mother Earth to give them power to catch prey and to feed their villages. There's a very, very deep cosmology around that. And I'd I'd read about it in, in, you know, this old, old books of anthropologists that talk about it, but I wanted to show it. Um, And so we took a trip out there. We sneaked into the country. We met up with a couple of Bushmen that really, you know, wanted to undertake the great risk to show the world that they still hunt and that their identities are not tied into the government's um, stripping of their rights.
1: And you did show that in the film. I remember there was one part where you went out with the you know, with the truck and they kind of tried to sneak past all the government officials that were out there to, you know, to show the young kids like how they do this and how they've been doing this for, you know, for centuries, almost as a history lesson of sort. And I think as a reminder of, of their roots and for them to sustain their culture, it's important that they're able to continue doing this despite the legal challenges of doing so.
0: And and similarly, I, th- I think we we'd all kind of Heard you know sentences or read paragraphs about the uh, these elusive Buddhist monks in Japan that did a marathon a day for thousands of days, and they they were kind of referred to as as the marathon monks. Um, they hadn't allowed anyone to film um on you know up there for for more than a generation, and I don't know somehow, just like with the bushmen and just like with the Navajo, who also hadn't allowed anyone to film the spirituality of their running kind of worked our way in there. Um, and so get this, the, the, these monks, um, they, they pick one person every seven to 12 years to do a thousand days of effectively trekking, um, walking, um, but they live on a 3,000 foot peak. And those thousand days are split up into 10 chunks, 10 hundred day cycles spread out over seven years. Each hundred day cycle has a set mileage And so the the first cycle is about 11 miles a day. Uh, But, you know, it's got 3,000 feet of elevation gain. You're on a single track trail. And by the 10th cycle, you're doing 56 miles a day, day in and day out, with bamboo sandals on a single track trail. You know, in those days, in in that that stage, you know, doing about 6,000 feet of, of, of elevation change. But the caveat is that you have to do your daily mileage. And I'm sure as a coach, you know, you, you have trouble enough with, with your with your runners, um, getting them to do your workouts precisely, um, even when it's their own satisfaction that's at stake. For the marathon monks, if they don't complete their daily mileage... Their lives are at stake. <laughs> yeah, they have to kill themselves. Yeah. And, and so luckily no one's killed themselves in about 200 years, but they say that, you know... If you know that that's the that's the consequence, and you know that that's your commitment, oh boy, it's like you don't take that practice lightly. Uh, and people say that that no one thinks about the, about the the consequences, you know, when they're doing it. I mean, you become a wreck. Um, you, you're just trying to get into a flow of of deep meditation and and deep joy, and and that's what carries you through obstacles. It's not the fear of this consequence, but they haven't diminished you know, the quest and, and the gargantuan number of miles, which, which, you know, exceeds 30,000 miles across those thousand days that they, they haven't lessened that or compromised any of it, uh, because they've kept the consequences so great.
1: Sanjay, if you had to distill it down, what's the through line between all of these different cultures that you experienced in the making of this film?
0: I mean, so, so th- this is just my own, my own, you know, opinion as, as, an absolute like amateur, simpleton runner. Like I haven't had the, the 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 great races that a lot of your your guests have had, and haven't like had the the joy of those achievements. But it, it made me realize that there, there's very very few things on earth where we all have the same basic tools. You know, we have our feet, we have our breath, and we have our heart. None of us on a track, none of us on a trail, ask anyone around us, you know, what their political affiliation is, what their religious background is, or what their, their country is. You know, when you run with people, you, you speak a language, and you speak a language that I think is more ancient than any modern civilization. And so the, the through line for the movie is that there was a time and age where everyone used running to achieve happiness. And running was one of the key ways we not only survived physically, but we survived as spiritual beings. Um, and that was codified. That was, that was a part of culture. That was a part of life. That was a part of, of who you were. Um, and I think as, as, as modern runners today, we might not all have that background, but when I, when I learned about these cultures, it made me feel less of a a solo runner. It made me feel like I was more than just a member of my local marathon team. It made me feel like, yeah, you know, I am doing this for the right reasons. It's like, like running and being a human, they go hand in hand.
1: And would that be what running culture, I mean, we see that phrase getting thrown around a lot these days, especially on social media, but is that what running culture means to you? So this is, that's a
0: great question. And I don't really have an answer to that because I think it goes back to one of your first questions that like in the 3,100 mile race, there's a spiritual aspect of self-transcendence, but there's also the concept of, of it being a race. And the, 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 the notion of self transcendence doesn't just come from, from like the, 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 the daily mileage, it comes from finding points within the year as well that you can just massively push yourself beyond your, your wildest, you know, limitations. Um, and like when I, when I saw the Navajo, it wasn't just that like, you know, we're, praying to mother earth or breathing in father sky. Like when they raced, they raced like their life depended on it. And it's like, they felt like, they feel like, you know, you can become a woman, you can become a man through just heaving your body over the edge in a race and just, you know, using, you know, your will and your heart to obliterate any sense of, of, of your limitations. So I I love the concept of running culture, but I also love when people really amp it up and say like, you know, we're not just going to race to get medals, you know, we're not just going to like do the majors just to like tick off a box. It's like, we're going to go out there and, you know, we're going to try to do our absolute very best, whether it means setting a personal best or, you know, like really proving yourself at a certain age. Um, and so I, I, I look at it two ways. It's like, I love the competitive side of sports at the same time. I'm, I'm realizing like the spiritual aspect can heighten the competitive aspect and vice versa.
1: So, building off of that, just watching running—whether it's a race or watching people run by lap after lap on a on a sidewalk—like it can be, it can be a pretty boring thing. Um, so, how do we make coverage of running, not just the sport, but the lifestyle, the culture, just more interesting to more people?
0: I, I, I that's a, that's a really, really deep question. You know, I, I think context is key. Um, just for the specific example you gave, it's like, yeah, the thirty one hundred mile race is the most boring thing in the world to watch, but a couple of years ago it wasn't in in twenty seventeen the sixty year old african American woman named Yolanda Holder came to compete as the first african american woman and the the first woman over sixty attempting to finish the 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 race and you know to kind of cap it off like she's a race walker, and so you know like on 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 that course if you have a bad day as a runner and you do like 50 miles well the next few days you could push it up to 70 72 and you could make up that the 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 bad day pretty quickly but if you're a race walker and you have a bad day you can't really walk that much faster so Yolanda did have a bad day around day 30 which meant that the last 22 days of the race she had to hit 61.5 miles do or die and she and she was Barely getting to fifty nine sixty by the midnight cutoff. The course is open from six to midnight,
1: and the so race directors how, will pull you if they feel like you're behind schedule and aren't going to be able to complete it. That's correct. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and so for the last twenty two days, a crowd would spontaneously gather from about ten fifteen ten thirty p.m. until midnight, and we'd all chitter chatter until Yolanda came around the corner. And then, for the straightaway, the 100 meters towards the finish line, the hundred meters past the, the 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 lap spot, people were just yelling and cheering. Um, so I, I would say it's it's like golf, you know it's like you could sit at the 18th green 18th hole and wait for somebody the whole day to come, um, or you could make you know you could make the best use of people who are there um, so in the thirty one hundred mile race it's like it's really inspiring to see someone push themselves and challenge themselves. And that's why like as, as a storyteller and, and as both of us as storytellers, like bringing out the achievements of people who are fighting the odds um, and really putting into context today's race, even for a pro, because even a pro is overcoming something tremendous each race they do, like it's never rosy. And understanding that hardship, I think will give people context into the meaning of a particular race for a particular runner, whether they're an amateur or the world's best.
1: Yeah. I think there's a level of relatability there, whether you are a pro or whether you are a new runner that we can all do a better job of trying to strengthen through the stories that we tell about athletes and personalities and people who are everyday people overcoming pretty tremendous obstacles in their life, whatever that may be.
0: One of the interesting experiences of taking the, the film around is, you know, that there's, obvi- there's obviously, you know, runners like like Tim Olson, um, who are, you know, very, very forward in the, the power that their own kind of meditative life and spiritual life brings to their running. Um, and one would think that the only fans of a movie about ultra long distance running could be people like him, you know, that, that do 50s and 100 milers like drinking water. Um, but, you know, in, in Portland, we had we had a chance to to do a panel with um, 2016 800 meter finalist um, Olympic finalist Kate Grace. And, you know, I, I I asked Kate, you know, I said, you know, and I'm, I'm revealing one of her secrets. So sorry, Kate. Um, I said, you know, in the 800 meters, like how do you like overcome your fear? Like in that kind of race, you can't make a mistake. And she said, you know, I'm not spiritual, um, but I, I I do visualize. She said, you know, when I visualize, I, I imagine, you know, that there's a little light in my heart. And, you know, as the race goes on, that light gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it's the size of the sun and then it bursts.
1: It's pretty remarkable.
0: I know. And I, I, I would imagine. For a two-minute race. I know. And I would imagine that more runners than not, like, who don't consider themselves quote-unquote spiritual just through the fact that they're running and that running is inherently a spiritual activity are have developed some pretty unique like inner tools to channel the channel, their willpower, channel their concentration or channel something much, much deeper like Kate alluded to. I think it's those types of stories that, what would, I think, add a lot to, you know, hashtag running
1: culture. Yeah. In your case, how did, the film change you
0: I, I think on one level the film is still changing me it was it was an absolute honor you know to spend time with the cultures we did from the navajo to the bushman to the monks in japan and then you know through the the film tour getting to meet a lot of my my heroes and people that i admire you know from you to kate to tim olson cat bradley keely henninger the list goes on um and i'm 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 realizing that it's like I'm 44 almost now. And I still feel like, you know, some of my best times are still in me. Um, but I, I know that's not going to be there for that much longer. And the, a question that I have as a master's runner is like, you know, how much longer can I keep doing this? You know, and, and what what can I get out of running that I haven't got before? And I go back to what Sean Martin says in our movie that, you know, running is a prayer. You know, you don't just go out in the morning to like, you know, show off your, your, your workouts on Strava, you know, you, you don't, you know, put your iPod headphones in your ears and go out and just jam. It's like your morning run is the way you connect to who you are. And once I started looking at running that way, you know, the idea of like a morning shakeout, you know, became a lot, it became, I was a lot more cheerful and a lot more enthusiastic.
1: Your perspective so I, changes.
0: Yeah. So I understand that part now. Um, The idea of running as a teacher, you know, I'm I'm beginning to like um, Dustin Martin of Wings of America. He he tells people who are experiencing deep, deep trauma, uh, even if they aren't runners, he says, like, before you make a decision, you know, when it comes to your own health or someone else's health, go for a walk, you know, go for a run, breathe in, like connect to the sky, connect to the stars the way we always have. I'm still kind of learning what that means. And then the idea of running as a celebration of life, I think that that depends on all of us. You know, can we look at today's age, look at climate change, look at the political craziness, look at the different backgrounds that people have and say like, hey, you know, we're going to actually make running culture a celebration of life. Like we're going to strip away all the insecurities of everyone. And it's like the best are going to mix with the worst and you know, we're going to cheer on the best. We're going to cheer on the worst. And we're going to say, like, in this activity, in this race, in this event, you know, we're going to we're going to try to find a deeper, deeper level of oneness that goes beyond the sponsorship and the medals and and the the after parties.
1: A couple more questions before we wrap up here. What can runners do to strengthen their own spiritual connection with this activity with this sport, with this way of life?
0: Yeah, you that know, that 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 that's a that's a that's a tough question. Like, you know, n- no one's gonna be able to become a Navajo. No no one's gonna become a Native American runner. You're not gonna be able to go join the the, the Bushman tribe or you know, you might not wanna go to become a Buddhist monk and, and do the challenge in Japan. And so the 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 question is like what type of spiritual practice can we build that will complement our running? Each, each of those cultures and, and tribes, they, they have a sense of ceremony, you know, around their running and, and outside their running. Um, so I think the first part is, is developing that sense of, of ceremony in your own life, whether, it's, whether you have a practice of meditation or prayer. If you don't, I think it's, it's important to, to kind of develop that, you know, whether you, you join a group or not to kind of develop that on your own. And then the hard work is beginning to find ways to integrate that practice of silent contemplation of ritual and running, and to combine them both. There, there was an, an Israeli runner um, named Kobe Oren, who's a thousand mile specialist, who ran the 3100 uh, last summer. And you know, as all Israeli citizens are, you know, he had to he had to join the army, and you know, he had a, a very, very kind of like strong sense of. Physical power and he has a lot of physical power. And so his thousand mile split in the 3,100 mile race was an Israeli national record. But I think at some point after that, his mindset changed and he realized that even the 3,100 mile run isn't a journey. He came to think of it as a pilgrimage. And what happens when you look at running as a pilgrimage? Each step becomes a ritual. It's not just like I'm going to, you know, run and do this workout and come back. But it's getting to understand how to appreciate each moment when you run and not break down the run in terms of miles or minutes but in terms of each step um and i i'm I'm trying to work on that in my own life um and try to dissociate like literally dissociate my measurements from my running and hope that that kind of like inner challenge lifts up my entire running practice
1: I love that and it's something. Personally, I'm trying to do as well, even though I've been involved in the competitive side of the sport for going on 22 years now, just by once a week, at least trying to take my watch off and not worrying about how many miles I'm covering or what pace I'm running and just trying to be a bit more in the moment and appreciate running for the simple act that it is and what it's brought to my life. And I think if we can all, you know, find that for ourselves on a small level each week, it does, it does shift your perspective. And I do think it, it strengthens your, you know, your connection, not only with running, but with yourself.
0: That's, a, that's a beautiful way of saying it. I love that.
1: So last question, when are you going to line up for the 3,100?
0: You know, so it's, it, it's crazy because it, 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 it's, it's dumb being an expert on a race you've never run in, right? It's just dumb. <laughs> and I, it's, I, I and I, I, I it, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And so the 3,100-mile the, the runners, they, they seem to train in a very specific way. Um, they try to do, you know, 30 it's time on your feet. And they try to do 35 or 40 miles on a Saturday and, like, stay on their feet and do all their chores, do yard work, just, like, obliterate their, like, stabilizer muscles. And then the next day, go out and do 25 or 30 and remain on their feet the whole day, whether it's hiking or going to a shopping mall. And so I was thinking, like, oh God, like, why would I want to do like 35 miles through the city? But last Saturday, Ashprihan Al Alto, the, the Finnish paper boy, came into New York for a couple of days because he had time off. And we wanted to do a spontaneous run, you know, in honor of, of the, the father of modern distance running, Ted Corbin, who lived in the Bronx in the 50s and 60s and would run 10 miles each way to work in Manhattan. And on weekends, would just do these spontaneous jaunts through the city, you know for 30, 40, or 50 miles each day, logging 200 to 300 miles of training each week. I mean, granted, he was in the Olympics in 1952. So Ashby Hanal and I met up with Knox Robinson of Black Roses, some members of like the urban running culture in the Bronx and the, the We Run Uptown crew, and did a spontaneous 33-miler starting in the Bronx and ending up at the 3,100-mile course. And um, a guy named Brendan Leonard, who's a, a an ultra runner and a journalist, and his friend, a photographer, Forrest Woodward, just pinged me and said, "Hey, this Friday we're going to be in town, and do you want to do a five borough pizza run, 35 to 40 miles?" And then my birthday is October 30th, and I I, I want to start the tradition of running my age on my birthday, and so just weirdly enough, like I've got these three 35 40 mile runs. You know, law, you know, scheduled for these few weeks. And I'm like, I'm training for the 3,100 without wanting to. So I, I'd, I'd like to do it either next summer or the summer after. That's a long way to say something
1: simple. <laughs> the pieces are seem to be falling into place anyway.
0: You know, like that run is all about the calories. They got to take in 10 to 12,000 calories a day And so I I think that like running from pizza shop to pizza shop is is an essential part of that training,
1: (laughs) or or donut shop to donut shop, or however you want to string it all together.
0: Exactly,
1: Um, Sanjay. This was very different from a lot of the other conversations I've had, but also one of the most enjoyable. I could talk about the competitive side of the sport all day, and we touched on a unique element of that here, but. I also love exploring the spiritual side of things. So I appreciate your perspective and I encourage everyone listening to this to check out your film.
0: I mean, in the galaxy of stars that you have on, it's an absolute, absolute honor for me to spend some time with you.
1: All right. That does it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. You can let me know what you thought by firing a tweet in my direction. That's at Mario Frayoli, M A R I O F R A I O L I or at, the am shakeout either one works just fine a few more things before we wrap up one if you are digging the podcast and you want to help more people find it so that they can enjoy it simply go to your podcast app subscribe to the morning shakeout and leave a rating and review simple as that it'll take you less than a minute but it goes a long way and it means a lot to me thank you to everyone who has done so already number two are you subscribed to my weekly newsletter it covers running and a whole slew of other worthwhile topics you're not? Well, what are you waiting for? Go to TheMorningShakeout.com slash subscribe and it will land in your inbox next Tuesday morning. You won't regret it, I promise. And third, if you would like to support the show directly, you can do so via Patreon at morningshakeout.com slash support. To all of my current patrons, your recurring pledges make this show possible and I cannot express my gratitude enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And finally, I'd like to give a special shout out to John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He takes care of all my audio editing needs and helps this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Thank you, John. All right, that's all I've got for you. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraoli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.